Greetings, rulers. For our 32nd night rule, we were extremely pleased to be joined again by Professor Julie Reck of the University of Alberta. Um, we delved pretty deeply into Russian formalism. Um, it was a really fascinating discussion for me personally, and I'm sure you'll all be stimulated by it a great deal as well. For our intro song today, we will be listening to an appropriately titled track. This is by Kraftwerk, and it's called La Forme. And our outro is uh, from a fantastic singer-songwriter, Max Ulich. Uh, this is his version of the Song of the Volga in English, of course. And uh, if you haven't heard of Max, I would definitely, 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 definitely recommend checking out his work online. Just search for Max Ulich. He's a really talented artist, and uh, you should definitely consider checking more of his work out if you like uh, what you hear. So without any further ado, welcome to Night Rule. So great to have you back. Uh, welcome one, welcome all, welcome rulers to Night Rule. We're so pleased to be joined again by Professor Julie Rack. She's the Henry Marshall Tory Chair in the Department of English and Film Studies at the University of Alberta. And uh, she's here to talk about uh, all things uh, culture, philosophy, systems of thought. I mean, I always found in, in your class, Julie, I was just always impressed by the amount of information you seem to possess inside your brain, you know, I mean, I think, I think as long as someone oh says it's the right cue, like, I, you're, we're one of those people, it seems as though as long as someone gives you the right reference, you can go to that reference and then just open up this file cabinet of stuff. The analogy um, of the file cabinet is really is appropriate. Although as I get older, I think my uh, file drawers are rusting slightly. But what I would say is that um, this is a lot like the way Augustine thought about memory. He literally said it was a filing cabinet. He thought you could just go there and get it out. And he didn't realize that's how computers would work. So it can look like that sometimes, but really my mind doesn't work. It's more like, um, it's more like a bunch of piles of paper somewhere. <laughs> <laughs> It sounds like cool me. Um, anyway, well, yeah, it's, it's a delight I'm, to be here, Isaac, and I'm super happy to talk about ideas like I always am. Yeah, no, it's a it's a pleasure to have you back. So, 
Um, I wanted to bounce off our previous discussion, um, which is now unlocked for everyone. I, that was one of our first premium episodes, I thought, which was appropriate. Huh. Um, we were talking about the study of literature and moving beyond uh, a kind of historical reading or a reading based on the biography of the author. And I thought mm -hmm. um, in terms of bouncing off that, I wanted to, now we were having a conversation before we hit record, you know, and uh, I was saying how, even though I've moved a ton of times and I, I've given up almost all my books, I've always held on to literary theory and anthology edited by Julie Rivkin and Michael Ryan. Fantastic oh, anthology. Yeah. Um, and, you know, going back and reading it, it's really interesting to go back and read it after all this time um, because, you know, it really um, inspired a lot of thought inside me at the time. But, uh, you know, a lot of time has gone by. I've changed as a person and it, it changes the way you read mm. these things as well, going from, you know, a 21 year old undergraduate to. Um, yeah, mid thirties, malcontent, know nothing, know it all, ne'er do well. Um, <laughs> so, but in the interest of kind of continuing the conversation here, uh, I did want us to talk about formalisms and, and probably specifically Russian formalism today, because I think it's um, you know really interesting for me personally to revisit it, and it's something that I don't mm -hmm. think people know a lot about. So, yeah, um, what I'll do is I'll I'll read from the intro to the formalism section right at the start of the book. This is on page Great. three, Rivkin and Ryan. Um, wow. this, is, this is a segment from their introduction, Formalisms. It has become commonplace of literary study that to study literature is to study language. Yet prior to the formalist movement, movements of the early 20th century, Russian formalism and American new criticism, the study of literature was concerned with everything about literature except language from the historical context of a literary work to the biography of its author. How literary language worked was of less importance than what a literary work was about. Two movements in early 20th century thought helped move literary study away from this orientation. The first movement was the attempt on the part of philosophers of science like Edmund, uh, is it Husserl? Husserl? Husserl, Husserl, yeah. To isolate objects of knowledge in their unmixed purity. And that's interesting. And just a quick aside, we'll, I'm sure we'll come back to that. Yeah. Uh, the Russian formalists, a group of young scholars, and please, Julie, correct my pronunciation and admonish my pronunciation here uh, as much as need be. Uh, Viktor Shlovsky, Roman Jakobson, yep. Boris uh, Tomashevsky, yep. and Boris Eichenbaum, yep. who wrote in the teens and the 20s, 19. 10s, 1920s were influenced by this approach. For them, literature would be considered not as a window on the world, but as something with specific literary characteristics that make it literature, as mm -hmm. opposed to philosophy or sociology or biography. Mm -hmm. um, and maybe you can comment a little bit more on that kind of at a high level for people before we delve into some of the individual writings that we wanted to talk about. Sure. Um, I think that it's really wise to start with thinking about formalism historically, even though the formalists probably wouldn't. <laughs> Ironic. Wow. Okay. Yeah. Well, they had a reason. And um, so, yeah, so I think there were a couple of things that were really significant there. One of them was the intellectual ferment in Russia. So Russia, of course, was in the midst of a revolutionary moment. And that moment changed a lot of things about what the intelligentsia were thinking about. And the intelligentsia in Russia, of course, is not like the way we understand in Europe or something like that. At that point, you could that would be anybody who was a level in the middle class, but who also was a knowledge worker. So that would include doctors, professors, 
writers. You could mm-hmm. be intelligentsia and not be a well-off person either. Well, I mean, and it was a very different, yeah. it was a very unique kind of class position yeah. to go going from a very surf kind of based rural economy. That's if you right. were a country doctor, you have, would have a very different class position in Russia relative to like other exactly. societies potentially, right? But, you, know, you watch Chekhov and he really talks about all that Chekhov's place. So what happens in the first, in the earlier part of the 20th century, of course, is that those sort of those ideas about meaning and beauty that a lot of things about the way literature was talked about and taught in Russia at that point had to do with mysticism. And so, you know, it, you know, somebody like Rasputin, you know, is like a popular figure around all that, but really that was pretty influential, that kind of idea that you could get these mystical meanings or that the study of poetry was the study of the author's mind. These are things that weren't just common to Russia. But I think that the revolution and the rise of other ways to interpret things um, had a profound impact on a very young group of intellectuals who were thinking, what can we do to throw off these old mystical ideas? Because they clearly have led us to a place of injustice. So they really did think about it that way. And one of the things um, that happened was a real interest developed in Russia um in language for itself like how would we and it's a lot like the way physics would understand itself later to be its investigation of its own methods so if we use language to construct the world around us if we do that if it's not just a reflection of the mind of god or something or you know then if we do that what how how can we use language to talk about language and so they were really the first people to think you have to look at structure and form does it have its own meaning and what i want to say about that is there's already artists who are doing that so a good example in europe is picasso somebody who's really interested in whether form could transmit a message in and for itself right or henri matisse could forms say something And do you have to even have it be representational for something to be said? The development of jazz music, the fact that African-Americans were working on jazz music in Europe and in North America, because it's really important to know that this isn't just a white people thing. Mm. Those people were interested, can, can music have its own message? Can it have something to say that doesn't represent anything? Mm. Uh, and in Russia, of course, you have really famous um, composers who are starting like Shostakovich, who was a supporter of the revolution initially in Russia, who were saying, could we make something that isn't related to the world, but yet makes feelings and makes thoughts? So these Russian formalists, which is what we know them as, those, those three men you mentioned, and then there were others as well, and probably Mikhail Bakhtin to some extent, although we departed from them a little, The Russian formal, and there were poets too doing all these things, trying to make experiments, trying to make art that just, um, you know, had had color as its message or, or trying to make poetry that just had sound as its message. Mm-hmm. And there were linguists who were really interested in that. Um, I think Vladimir Klebnikov is one of them and uh, who was also, I think, a writer, but, you know, mm-hmm. go and look it up. Uh, but Could but you those just, people just... were interested in sound, pro- you know, so what does that mean? That means that form has its own life. It has its mm-hmm. own thing and you can look at it. And that's really the beginning of formalism. Russian formalism was really interested in that. And did it even have a did it have a relevance in the world? 
beyond some kind of mystical relevance did it and and to them it was modern this is like understanding the structure of buildings if you think about architecture and modernism where you show the cement you show the metal you show the glass like to us now you look at a skyscraper and you think oh whatever you know we see those all the time mm. but imagine before that buildings disguised what they were they didn't say what they were they had they had all kinds of decoration on them so you didn't look it's um it's a little bit like uh you know from my era because i'm older the 70s had record players and they hid them inside of these wooden consoles yeah the hi-fi yeah. yeah the hi-fi the hi-fi hides itself imagine mm -hmm. not hiding it and trying to see how it worked and see its mechanical nature and that that would have its own beauty and that is that is formalism. <laughs> They're kind of doing the same thing. They're saying, let's let's get the decoration off the structure and actually see how it works. So that's what these particular formalists were doing, as opposed to some of the others who do other things. Now, would that would that tie into some of the other modernist movements in literature, like in like say early American or the 20th century American right. literature? You had people like uh, I don't know. I've, I've always been a big John Dos Passos fan, but there's mm -hmm. all kinds of writers that were experimenting with form. They were interested in kind of like really uh making the novel like a malleable form where they're mixing different languages different voices sure um a good example would be somebody like james joyce who's creating experiments that are calling attention to how he made something in addition to other things um trying to understand mechanical inventions like the clock and time in terms of how to tell a story so yeah there's there's there is and the reason why this happens is that is that the revolution rolls on in you know in russia and things get a little hairy for some of these folks. Like they welcomed the changes in the revolution, but so when when things really started to get serious in Russia, you know, and and when especially when Stalin comes into power, things get a lot more doctrinaire for these intellectuals, and they some of them can are in danger. Some of them go to jail, and or are exiled, and some yeah. of them just leave the country. And where they go is Europe, and they encounter these other people working on these things and they influence them. So French structuralism is influenced by Russian formalism because they are all in the same place in Paris. They all go there. And, uh, you know, and, and Russian people who were intelligentsia at the time could speak French because that was the language one learned. So they could talk to these folks. So that is one of the reasons why you see some consistencies. Wasn't French uh, like the language of the court? I mean, this is pre-revolution yep. obviously as well, like in Russia, like uh, people don't realize that in St. Petersburg. It was. I never know what to call the city. It was the language of bureaucracy. So the yeah. way that English is today, uh, lingua franca, it mm. was literally a language of exchange. Yeah. Um, that's how French was. So they yeah. could speak when they went there. So they would often they would go to France. They didn't all go, but a lot of them did, um, because they were they were leaving um, a revolution that to them had become excessive, uh, and and was even dangerous. And so they but they wanted to keep. Uh, pursuing the ideas that they were developing there. So that's that's where all those expatriates go. And, uh, you know, it, it affects everything. It affects dance and ballet and art and literature and also theory. And that's what we're talking about today. So that's how yeah. that happens. That's uh, it's it's really fascinating because you know French structuralism is like I mean if you're uh, if you've gone to university you studied the humanities you probably would have encountered yeah. it but I don't feel like Russian formalism as an antecedent is really getting it gets Not much, much, uh, gets much you know. Play. No. Um, the Russians, uh, 
at it again. So I, I, let's get some meat on the bone here. We read the introduction. Yes. What is Russian formalism? So I thought, uh, I thought a good place, and this is where they, uh, they start off Rifkin and Ryan, page 28, yes. Vladimir Prop, the morphology of the fairy tale. Yeah, Vladimir right? so, Prop, yes. Yeah, and this, this I, I actually find Prop um, just stylistically like quite easy to read. Yes. Um, and I don't know, it kind of rhymes in a lot of ways with some interesting stuff, so. Um, but I'll, yes. just, I'll just start, this is page sure, 28. Sure. Go ahead. Um, quote, let us first of all attempt to formulate our task. As already stated in the foreword, this work is dedicated to the study of fairy tales. The existence of fairy tales as a special class is assumed as an essential working hypothesis. Mm. We are undertaking a comparison of the themes of these tales. For the sake of comparison, we shall separate the component parts of fairy tales by special methods, and then we shall make a comparison of tales according to their components. The result will be a morphology, i.e. a description of a tale according to its component parts and the relationship of those components to each other and to the whole. What methods can achieve an accurate description of the tale? Let us compare the following events. One, a czar gives an eagle to a hero. The eagle carries the hero away to another kingdom. Two, an old man gives Suchenko a horse. The horse carries Suchenko away to another kingdom. Three, a sorcerer gives Ivan a little boat. The boat takes Ivan to another kingdom. Four, a princess gives Ivan a ring. Young men appearing from out of the ring carry Ivan away into another kingdom and so forth. Both constants and variables are present in the preceding instances. The names of the dramatis personae change as well as the attributes of each, but neither their actions nor functions change. From this, we can draw the inference that a tale offers identical actions to various personages. Yes. This makes possible the study of the tale according to the functions of its dramatis personae. Yeah, great passage. Okay, so what is going on there? There's a couple of things. If you are a mathematician, you totally can see what's going on. If you're a computer programmer, you can completely see what's going on. Based on this. So you have constants and you have variables. Variables are assigned, like let X equal, let A equal, and then you can change at different points. But you'll always have equals plus and minus, and they don't change, right? They always add. Plus doesn't ever do anything. You know, it's positive. It doesn't do anything else. Minus is something. And that's where you have it here. So you can see, uh, if you were able to see those sentences laid out for you, you would see the constants. Gives, there's always a gift. And carries, somebody is always taken somewhere. It doesn't matter who the people are. They, you could you can change them. They're variables. That's what he means. And so this is very clearly meant to be, um, and it thought of itself as a scientific way to look at how language works and how stories work. So he uses the word fairy tales. Prop is very famous for that. But fairy tales weren't, and and those kind of stories weren't. I mean, the Brothers Grimm had already collected things, for instance, in Europe, right? The real Grimm's fairy tales, if your listeners don't know, are much are much more interesting than the mm. Disney version. So just yes. watch Disney and go look at the real thing. Um, but totally. people knew that these stories were out there and they were circulating, but it was like there was no understanding that they could be read the way that you might read literature. So like how do you read them other than know that there's a whole bunch of them? So here you can see 
prop is trying to create a systemic way to see these different tales. Like maybe it doesn't, maybe repetition is important, right? He's not reading for uniqueness. Mm. Maybe what matters is that you have commonalities and they're all the same. And then other things change. What is the relationship between the elements? There's always someone who gives something. So who is that? So you, so you're thinking about, you're thinking about stories in terms of their component parts. Mm. And the sequence is important too, right? That's morphology, right? You break it down into your constituent parts and then you compare the parts Hmm. to try to understand what's happening. Yeah, those parts have a completely different meaning depending on where they are in the sequence as well, which again, really reminds me of of, uh, computer programming and just, it has, I mean, is it fair to say that this movement was influenced by people like uh, Bertrand Russell and and people like that that were trying to kind of quantify uh, like statements and truth yep. in, in, and also that in turn had a big in, influence on computer programming and things like logic yep. and whatnot formal logic correct yes and and people like prop you know interacted with bertrand russell and wittgenstein and people people like that who were interested in what governs statements so yeah they're all working on the same kinds of things it's just that props interested in fairy tales because they're oral originally and then they become written but they're not they're not thought at the time to be anything that you could get meaning out of other than metaphorical things so hansel and gretel does it look like other things right you know if you break down hansel and gretel as a story and there's lots of versions of it that's the other thing about folk tales there's tons of versions of them um and in russia there were lots you know, are there other versions like it? What what changes? What doesn't change? Are there other things like Beauty and the Beast? Does that look like Hansel and Gretel? Mm, you know, so you can you can actually, if you can isolate the components, you can do that. And you're quite right. Computer programming does the same thing. It breaks things down at components um, and you can compare. So, yeah. I mean, what's interesting to me as well is, and sorry, I just got a message I have to answer really quick. Um, What's interesting to me as well is to distinguish and delineate the difference between this Russian formalist approach and things like uh, uh, thinkers like uh, Young or Joseph Campbell, who obviously Young was approaching it from a completely like in terms of psychology and myth and Campbell also in terms of myth and mythology and religion and and kind of uh, this transcendent collective unconscious, if you will, or whatnot. But really the Russian formalists were more like, let's just scientifically study literature and look at its form and understand how that form operates and how it creates meaning. Yep, they don't care about the decoration on the building. Hmm. They care about this. How does the building get put together? Can yeah. we can we build another building out of this building? <laughs> That's what yeah. they're thinking. They're not. They don't care about car ads that are all about desire. They care about the engine. <laughs> mm. Well, and actually, the the Jungian, the Jungian yeah. and Joseph Campbell thing could actually, in a lot of ways, feed a lot a lot into a, a reactionary politics too, right? It's oh, like, yeah, like it people did. like Jordan Peterson talks about. We oh, have yeah. to reclaim meaning and blah 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 blah, blah as though there's some kind of like mythical logos out there floating some giant cosmic phallus that we're all we all need to unite with or something that's how he knows more about it than i might i don't know exactly like i just think whatever and also it all comes down to lobsters just getting that out there whatever lobsters poor lobsters yeah I mean, the lobsters do not actually have anything to teach us about sexuality. And if you know, so many, this is actually a good analogy because, you know, here, prop would be like, what's the relationship between lobsters and the eternal soul? Probably nothing. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> 
Um, I also think was actually like speaking of Jordan Peterson as good, you know, um, uh, secret uh, Marxist or whatever. I don't, I don't know what we are, what we would be to him. But I did think actually when when you look at the way like so here we go. Let me see here. We're undertaking we're undertaking comparison of themes of these tales. So it's like it, it reminds me, and it kind of rhymes. I don't know if it's a direct influence. I mean, obviously it would have been in the intellectual milieu at the time, but. If you think about the way someone like Marx uses abstraction for the purposes of analysis and capital, yeah. right? He's saying, I want, I want to compare something. Uh, I, I need some kind of means of making things equal or, or pseudo equal for the sake mm -hmm. of comparison and analysis. And I'm going to abstract things. And it feels to me like, you know, for the sake of comparison, we shall separate the component parts of fairy tales by special methods. And then we shall make comparison of these tales according to their components. That that could be, that, that also seems to me kind of, uh, derived and influenced and, and leveraging for great benefit, perhaps, yeah. uh, some of the Marxian kind of methods, methodology that might have been around. Yeah, for, especially for Marx. Like, I think it's actually a really interesting comparison to make. Um, and one of the, and it's absolutely true. Marx wanted to make a science of studying capital, and he knew what scientific methods were out there, right? He had learned them. He had, he had learned um, all kinds of inquiry, including Kant and Hegel, like he had studied Hegel and people like that. So he knew that to make a science, you needed to break down and isolate things and do objective work on it. So he was not, for instance, somebody in favor of Sigmund Freud's way of doing things like that. He was not in favor of that. But yeah, he would have been influenced by that. This, this stuff was stuff people were talking about. Like, how can we be scientific in our study of society? And he's certainly not the only person who would have used some of the same methods. But the conclusions are going to be different because Marx is going to say that the conclusions that he will give you will lead you to political action. And Vladimir Prop would not say that. He would say they will lead you to the understanding of what the structure is. So somebody like, um, there's another uh, formalist from this period, Svetan Todorov, right? And Todorov is really famous for applying the same method to the study of science fiction and fantasy, what we now call SF, speculative fiction. And now, and we still talk about Todorov in that way, because it, when you study those kinds of things, the Star Wars plot, you can break that down. You can see how it works and how it replicates itself. And it's actually part of an older fantasy plot, right? It's not that different, right? You know, and so if you can, you can still do things that that prop says you can do with fair with folktales and fairy tales, and you can do them with these other things that don't rely on completely original conceptions. You can do this to Shakespeare, people do. Because Shakespeare, you know, often repeated things, repeated plots. So, you know, oh, if, if you want to study how a story is told, like this kind of stuff still out there. Mm. And it's interesting to me, to me as well, because I, I find uh, the, I mean, you know, when, um, when Prop gives us this kind of very simple, like supposedly straightforward formulation, you know, uh, a czar gives an eagle to a hero, an old man gives a chinko a horse. I find the fourth one so tantalizingly interesting, right? Because it's the only one that has any kind of gender. It's the only one that's gendered in any way. I think there's an obvious symbolism. And I think it, it yeah. kind of is a good thread in the tapestry that you could pull out and say, okay, well, maybe we can start thinking about mm -hmm. what kind of roles uh, male characters play in a story, what kind of roles female characters play in a story, et cetera. And like, once you, once you look at that thread, I think, I think that's one of the things that really like stuck with me from from studying this is is looking at say like you go and watch a movie and 
you know, uh, I was uh, last episode I was talking to Ben Burgess and I, I misremembered what the Bechtel test was, but it's a very famous test. Oh, yes, yes, Alison Bechtel's thing. Yeah, two women have a conversation about anything other than a man um, in the film. <laughs> um, and it's actually, it's pretty interesting because, you know, I think there's some feminist uh, films that that wouldn't even technically meet the standard, but I think it was meant as like yeah. a satirical kind of point, first of all, but it's interesting to me. Oh, yeah. It's like, we live in the age where everyone's just like, say for example, strong female lead, strong female lead, strong female lead. And I've heard it a million times. Yes. I ask myself, okay, well, if I'm watching Wonder Woman, she's a strong female lead, but is her primary motivation just completely focused on the male character and centered around him? Yeah. You know? Is she, yeah. is, is, is he, is, does he supersede all other priorities for her? And is, is that the source of all of her characters? Yeah. Um, yeah. You know? And it's like, well, you, you ask yourself, okay, well, like, can you, so you can have a strong female lead, but if the woman still plays the same role in the story and uh, the boundaries of that story are the same, aren't you, you're ultimately kind of, you're, you're telling the same story ultimately, you know? Yeah, you're just switching, you're just switching somebody's genitalia. You haven't really done anything. That's right. So why isn't it female lead? <laughs> or what, what would a weak male lead look like? <laughs> That's a good question. You know, so um, one of the things about this kind of stuff you're talking about is that structuralist stuff, really, the gift of it has been the gift of method, being consistent. And if you break something down and figure out something like that, you can say, well, what's its opposite? Can you actually say there, there's an opposite? Can you say that there's a homology? Can you make comparators? Um, you know, sometimes structuralists don't do any more with it than that, which I always find disappointing but you're showing a way to another kind of a reading, right? Where we can go, okay, fine. And there's lots of other people who, like Laura Mulvey is a classic example, who did take structuralist ideas along with other ones and help to un help us understand how does the male gaze work in a lot of mainstream film. And that's male, male gaze that like decades old and people still use it. Mm. So, because Hollywood doesn't change very much. <laughs> so, and neither does Bollywood really. <laughs> Right. So, yeah. yeah uh, just to clarify, the male—that's male gaze, G-A-Z-E. That's that's a fantastic essay. Yeah. I'm, I'm sure we'll get to that at some point. And that absolutely, would be really that's right. That's G -A -D, not G-A-Y-S. That's the whole yeah. point. But yeah, we can absolutely get to that. Yeah. Um, but I think that some of those things um, also make their way into an attendant field called semiotics, which mm -hmm. became a way, specifically in France, and also those Russian emigres I talked about developed a more rigorous or consistent way to understand how the sign works. And that really, semiotics is a really good, even now I would still say, a really good way to understand, for instance, how advertising works. And I still teach this stuff to my students because I think we're surrounded by images. We're surrounded by all kinds of digital signs asking for our attention telling us to pay attention and we don't always have very good ways of understanding how they work or how they're working in us and on us and okay. semiotics can kind of slow that down and help you understand that and i it, for me as a as a teacher it's really important to give um students especially but anybody really the tools to try to understand that digital world because otherwise it's just going to work on you without you knowing why or how and you know you wake up one day and you want to buy a ford explorer and you just don't know what happened <laughs> semiotics can tell you why yeah 
<laughs> yeah. Um, and okay, I think we'll probably. I think semiotics might be a good one for our next our next yeah, talk. Although I do want to talk yeah. about there's there's probably some more formalism Absolutely. to go through, and also criticism. Some... But there's so much terrain, Julie. It's, it, we, oh, we, we, there's a full there's a full a full buffet laid out before us. Um, Absolutely. It's inter interesting talking about advertising because I think that might segue pretty well into the next quote that I wanted to go into. Yeah, yeah. Um, which is again from Rivkin and Ryan. This is Mikhail Bakhtin, uh, Discourse in the Novel, page 32. Um, yeah, it's Mikhail Bakhtin because Mikhail Bakhtin. that's the Russian word for Michael. So, you know, he's Mikhail, you know. Yeah. Yeah. Thank you. I, hey, that's I, I okay. appreciate that. I, I'm, I'm someone who really cares a lot about pronunciation. I think it's like an underrepresented <laughs> art form, so to speak. He would appreciate um, it. He would appreciate yeah. it. Uh, this is 1934-35. Yeah, very early, actually. So, quote, uh, the novel can be defined mm -hmm. as a diversity of social speech types, sometimes even diversity of languages and a diversity of individual voices artistically organized. The internal stratification of any single national language into social dialects, characteristic group behavior, professional jargons, generic languages, language of gener languages of generations and age groups, tendit, what does tenditious mean? I was supposed to look that up before we started. Oh, it would be, I, I don't know quite what he means there. I'd have to go look at the Russian, but he, I think he means languages that wouldn't be considered to be real languages or they might be oppositional. Okay. He was really interested in informal languages, like the language mm. of the marketplace. So it's possible this is what he's thinking about, but I don't really know. Okay, okay. <laughs> that makes two of us. Uh, languages of the authorities of various circles and of passing fashions, languages that serve the specific socio-political purposes of the day, yep. even of the hour. Each day has its own slogan, its own vocabulary, <laughs> its own emphasis, emphases, dash. And this is a very important dash. So he's tying this all together. This internal stratification present in every language of its historical existence is the indispensable prerequisite for the novel as a genre. So Bakhtin the Great. It's it's just it's it's such and that's one of the things I love about this book is you'll read one half paragraph and then you'll you'll go for a long walk and just be thinking about it, you know. So he's saying there's there's all these different methods of speech, these different cultures of speech, different voices, individual voices. Uh, you know, I think a lot of these things he cites are all very like evocative and you know, languages of the authority, languages of, of just the, the socio-political needs of the day. You know, I think when I watch, for example, anything from the early 2000s, you can really see the politics of the day in the mainstream network television of the time because there was this overarching theme of, say, for example, any episode with a Muslim character, they would yeah. be like, look, we know, we understand, we don't want to be racist against Muslim people or prejudice, prejudice against Muslim people, but you have to admit all terror, all the terrorists are Muslim, so deal with it, basically. And you just see that as a through line yeah. from like 2001 to 2000, probably 15, before they finally gave up the ghost on just being like straight up apologists. Actual for... Muslims like make stories and stuff. <laughs> yeah, sure. Um, yeah. Um, okay. So what Bakhtin's talking about, I'm, um, I, uh, I spent a lot of time reading Bakhtin and writing about him, uh, you know, so not just, so I didn't just teach his stuff. Um, so there's a couple things that are really interesting about him for me. One is that in the 1930s, you know, you would, now it's hard to imagine, but there was debates going on between literature scholars about whether the novel was even any good. So 
when you went to school and you took English, you didn't read novels. Novels were thought to be things that that you could just read on your own or that you could teach to women or the working poor because they're stupider. Mm. So they need something easier to be able to read. Yeah. You are going to read epic poetry for that's like from the, you know, that's in Greek and Latin. You're going to read like, you know, these, you're going to read the real stuff. You're going to read the Iliad and the Odyssey mm -hmm. and Dante's Inferno. And you're going to read all that. Well, it's interesting because at that yeah. time, there was still very much a high culture, low cultural division. Right. Like we're talking about like, I, I've, I'm really into um, like someone like Mark Twain, for example, was totally eschewed by the literary Oh, circles yeah. of the day they they thought his work was it had nothing to do with the politics of it they just thought the language the vernacular language was just vulgar and yeah. his books were mostly just sold door to door to like farmers and whatnot like it wasn't oh, yeah. as though yeah. the literary houses in the coast were were singing his praises necessarily although he did write the prince yeah. and the pauper in an attempt to do something in kind of higher language well that would be appreciated yeah well but said it, and i recently re i recently read his um it hadn't been published until recently because mark twain is really one of the first literary celebrities of the 19th century. So he is somebody who really understands that he, because he's locked out of all that high culture stuff, he has to maintain his image and he has to market it. And so he actually put an embargo on his publications until a hundred years after his death, which is why we just have his diaries now and oh. his autobiographies. I know, and he's quite a good writer. I really was surprised when I started reading this stuff, how, how interesting good this stuff was. Mm. And he's really sharp. And yeah, one of the things that he, he says is like, you know, Huckleberry Finn wasn't written for children. <laughs> That's a you know, and now he's all, you know, now he's like a big figure or whatever. But at the time, yeah, he's not anything. And it's partly the genres he's writing in and also that he's a journalist. So these are things, you know, these kinds of things aren't thought to have real merit. They're just out there. So Bakhtin is one of the people who in this essay especially, um, but also at other points, wants to make a case that the novel is worth it. The novel is not just some garbage genre, that it actually really ha is about human life. And he didn't see a difference between the way people spoke. So, so that passage is really evocative. So I'm so happy you read it. Mm. He thought he would go into the markets and he would hear people like just the, a cacophony of voices. And that's how he understood them. He would he and he and he would hear everything going on at once. Like there'd be high speech, there'd be low speech, there'd be the speech of the church, there'd be the speech of some seller. Somebody would be having a fight. Somebody over there would be you know having a romantic moment. Like everything going on at once. And he thought the novel was also like that. So what he called it was heteroglossia, which means many languages, many dialects. Um, and that's yeah, what that's... you're seeing in that passage. He's talking yeah, yeah. about all these different things. And so what he what says later on the essay is a novel is like a symphony orchestra, but the conductor has lost control mm -hmm. and everybody's doing what they, <laughs> what they want. And so he says, you can look at a novel and you can see all those different languages happening at the same time. Mm -hmm. You can see the official ones. You can see the unofficial and he would take a novel, like, and he would use something like, oh, I don't know, like Dostoevsky, or he would borrow like Dickens. He really liked reading that. And he'd be like, okay, look at this high official stuff going on over here, you know, on one side. And the other side, there's all this, 
this other stuff and it's fighting, it's fighting together. And he called that dialogics. Like he thought it was, mm -hmm. it was in, they were in dialogue. They were fighting it out, the languages. And that, that's why the novel is exciting mm. because he didn't think that happened in poetry. Mm. And he thought poetry was completely different and it didn't work the same way. So in his effort to say structurally, so in other words, in the, at the level of form, right? He didn't, he didn't, unlike these other Russian formalists who are really, they don't care about the social meaning, like Vladimir Prop did not care about the social meaning of the fairy tale. He didn't care. Oh. But for, for Bakhtin, he thought, no, 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 the, the social world has the same structure in it. And then you can read something and it has it. So there's no difference for him, right? He did, and that's a really big thing for people at the time. And people like Julia Kristeva discovered Bakhtin's work years later. She's, um, for those of you in the audience who not sure who Julia Kristeva is, sometimes I don't know if she knows either. She's, uh, she was an um, uh, early uh, the, uh, advocate of deconstruction and also certain forms of feminism. And she actually wrote really, really interesting uh, work about uh, horror, um, the idea of horror, and also about depression. She wrote a book called Black Sun, right? That has, that's about that. But she was really interested in Bakhtin. Like she discovered this stuff and she translated it from Russian into French. And she was like, because he didn't leave. He didn't go to Europe. He stayed in Russia, although he was internally exiled. And you know, um, and I think, you know, Stalin watched him pretty closely. So he was afraid that he was going to be seditious. So, you know, Bakhtin doesn't leave. So she finds this stuff and she says, oh, my God, this is like this guy's make, not making any distinction between the social world and the literary world. What can we do with that? And that's really, you know, that's where Bakhtin's work becomes important later for deconstruction. Uh, and, you know, that's kind of how that happened because she found him. It's interesting because yeah. it, when I'm reading this, I think of uh, you hear writers say just anecdotally that, you know, they'll start a project and they'll invent this character. And mm -hmm. then it's almost as though the character takes on a life of their own and they yep. and they do what they want. And when you look at what Bakhtin is saying here in terms of divergent voices, divergent speeches and uh, like uh, languages and voices <clears throat> and all yeah. these different forms, mm -hmm. it would make sense that you could have something like a character that seems like they're beyond your control because you've invoked yeah. one element of say like a like a high official character or something like that yep. is probably going to take on a life of their own based on sure. the, the life that 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 social that social element of language has um, yeah and, and as you were saying early on like the you know you you even if you're looking at a film or something and you and you see all these assumptions about muslims and how they're supposed to talk and how they do stuff regardless of what nice liberal thing you want to say about them, you're still going to make them, you know, talk in this way. And, and I think, or you make them talk and you, or you make them not do that. And that that's kind of how you can see how those languages are connecting to each other or not for Bakhtin. He thought that, that the novel was about conflict mm. and that conflict was exciting. He didn't think it was about getting along because he thought that when things get along too much, they die. So he called that monologia when there's only one voice. And he says mm. the language of the Bible is that, it's only one voice. It's been read that way. It doesn't have to be that way, but it's been read that way. And he talks about, if you insert the Bible into a novel, it just falls like a rock through the whole thing. 
he talks about it like that because he says that discourse doesn't want to have anybody come into it and affect it. He thought that the mm. two different dis, this is discourse in the novel, different voices, let's say, in a novel, maybe they have maybe they're represented by different characters, or maybe you would have a narrator who's even different you know, from those characters, they're all kind of influencing each other a little bit. When you're reading, you can see, you can hear, but the Bible doesn't get influenced by anything. It doesn't ever change. It's mm. just there. You know, somebody, somebody quotes and it's just like, boom, you know? So he's like, oh, it just dies. He doesn't like it. So <laughs> that's interesting. It's honestly yeah. fascinating. I mean, the, the applications are just so, yeah. so uh, ever present, but I do want to continue reading from the same sure. page as well. Exactly. So, um, and again, this is discourse in the novel. Um, the novel orchestrates all its themes, the totality of the world of objects and ideas depicted and expressed in it mm -hmm. by means of the social diversity of speech types and yeah. by the differing individual voices that flourish under such conditions. The use of the word flourish is interesting there to me. Yes. Oh, that's very, very Bakhtin. Mm. Yeah. Authorial speech, the speeches of narrators, inserted genres, the speech of characters are merely these fundamental, oh, wait, hold on. Speech of characters are the speech of characters are merely those functional compositional unities with whose help heteroglossia, which you've mentioned yeah. before, can enter the novel, diversity of voices. Yeah. Each of them permits a multiplicity of social voices and a wide variety of their links and interrelationships, always more or less dialogized. These distinctive oh, yeah links and interrelationships between utterances and languages, this movement of the theme through different languages and speech types, its dispersion into the rivulets and droplets of oh. social heteroglossia, its dialogization oh. is the basic distinguishing feature of the stylistics of the novel. And speaking of stylistics, just what a pro stylist. Oh yeah. You should see him in Russian too. It's crazy. <laughs> okay, so so there's there's lots of ideas to unpack there. We're never going to get to everything, but one thing to think about is that heteroglossia, right? Like that in your life. Like just think about how if it was not even if it is COVID, actually it might work. But let's say as you go about your day, you know, you you go outside, you hear a whole bunch of different kinds. You might hear some construction workers, and they're talking a certain way. And then you go to a store to do some pickup because, you know, you're social distancing and doing the right thing. So you're picking up some food or something and you hear something else. You hear some other kind of thing. And you're, you've got both those in your head. Let's say now that you're a writer and you want to write about that day. You're James Joyce. And you want to show everything that happens to your character, Leopold Bloom, in one day, in a whole of the world then you have to figure out how you're going to put all that in there so that those voices have their own life. That's heteroglossia. But then you also might put them into dialogue with each other. You might put them in and then, and then they're going to be in conflict with each other and then they're, but they're going to influence each other. And that's dialogism. So unlike dialectic where, where the two elements, you know, um, clash with each other and then one is supreme in the end and they don't really affect each other in dialogism, they affect each other. And you might even get a new hybrid form from it. Okay, you might get something new. So let's say you know you're writing your you're writing your novel, and your novel is about where you live, the city where you live, and and you hear a song, and you want to put that song in there, and you want to make sure that people hear the song that you hear on the street about the city that you live in, but you also want the traffic, but you also want children playing. So you want to have all of that together. How do you do that? And that to him is that authorial voice trying to bring her the, the rich social texture of the world 
into the into a literary form so that other people can experience it. So during lockdown, I read, I decided I would do a bunch of reading that I wouldn't usually do. And one thing I read was the novel Duck's Newburyport. And Duck's Newburyport is a novel of over a thousand pages, like it might be 1200 pages. And it is one sentence, most of it, except for some sections that have different sentences, but most of the rest is a run on sentence. Wow. Meant to show the internal monologue of this woman that, you know, is living in the, in the central United States, all the things she's thinking about stuff happens, but it's only her voice, but everything comes into that voice. That would be an example of somebody trying to do that, trying to give the sense of what somebody's head's like, but also how do they move through their day? What are they doing? And it has a James Joyce kind of a feel to it. But I read Ulysses right after, and I thought Ulysses was much easier to read. Mm. <laughs> so, because, you know, it's not one sentence, but it's also, so, so here Bakhtin is trying to get you to think, not just like a formalist. So you have to think about point of view, like who's telling a story and who's not, but also what are those voices doing? Are those voices bigger than what the narrator even means them to be? When you have a, like you say, when somebody's writing a book and they feel like the character's bigger than their own imagination, or you read some, you read something and you think, whoa, that person is much, that that's like a person that I would meet. Then you have that sense of that social voice but it also is the voice of class, race, you know, age, ability. It's the voice of your social existence. It isn't just an individual voice. And Bakhtin was really careful to say that. He, he thought that you are never just you anyway. You're a product of all those voices and discourses and thoughts and words. And, and you are a product of those and you interact with them, whatever you is. And, and in a novel, it does the same. He didn't think it was different. So there you go. I don't know if that helps. <laughs> no, that's fantastic. And we'll we'll start the wind down procedure. Okay, right. I know you, I know you you got you got stuff you got to do. So yeah. thank you so much for coming on. I'm, I I look I'm, I'm was looking forward to this for a long time and Oh, so much. Um, so I mean, but it's fair to say like I think one of the uh, one of the most fascinating aspects for me is this idea that um the novel is the product of a certain type of society, almost like a cultural moment in history where Yes. where societies have reached a certain level of complexity. You know, it's you can imagine that, yep. you know, a, a monochromatic society, a monolithic society wouldn't produce a novel or certainly not a very good novel, obviously, yeah. right? Well, there's, a, so there's the, acres of terrible novels that, that are made in totalitarianism, so yeah. <laughs> yeah, it's like the, the, like the required, there's a, there's a requisite vitality to the yeah. actual society that this is coming out of. And, and, and the ability of the novel as a form, as opposed to say poetry or theater, or film or music is potentially to speak um, with a lot of de detail to that actual society that it, that it stemmed from, and and, yeah. and it kind of internalizes its own the complexity, or at least like a is imbued by it. Yeah, that's how Bakhtin saw it, and he thought that, and and he thought that if those things are in a living way um, inside of a, a novel, you wouldn't be able to mistake that, and then that's a living society that you can see. So, you know, and that and other people have made a, you know, the argument that other genres do do those things. And you could say that as well. But he was trying to make a case for the novel because nobody was really paying attention to it. So he wanted to say, no, this is something the novel can do that other things don't do. Like a sermon doesn't do that. A sermon's about one way to see something. It's one one person's voice or idea. 
but this is not even if you think you try to make it just you you're never going to yeah it's too ungoverned and it goes everywhere Mm. Right. So if you read, you know, the brothers Karamazov or something, you'll see different voices, different social things happening in the book. That's why people still want to read it. So that's mm. that's sort of what he meant. Yeah. No, I think it really um, it really allows one to uh, to really. This is one of the things I loved about studying critical theory is yeah. it really allowed you say you've read you read some of the first time just to enjoy it. If you read it for the second time with some of this analysis, you can really find a lot of really interesting stuff. It's like you, you find gold in like a certain sentence, a certain character, a certain line, you realize that it's it's got this kind of uh, like subterranean life that you can kind of think about and consider from different vantage points, you know? That's wonderful. Yeah. Yes, it's my hope. And as an older person, I go back and read these things too. And I think about them and I think about them differently. So it's good. Mm -hmm. One thing about formalism that we should leave your readers with, or your your listeners, I should say, sure. is... Uh, is um, it's uh, Viktor Shlovsky. Mm. We should never forget about him because he's really significant um, because he is the person who said, what makes language, literary language different from other kinds? And this is really a cornerstone, a stone for formalism, mm. uh, you know, because they were really interested in that. Like, you know, you have the phone book, right? You know, that's one thing. But why is a poem not like a phone book? Or why is a short story not like, um, you know, a deed to a property. Like, what is the difference, really? And what he said was that literature, or literary language, I should say, exists to make the stone stony. So he, he said very famously, he said, it exists to make you it, uh, enact the work of defamiliarization. So you go through your life, he would say, you know, and you don't pay attention to the details of your life. You hear a bird sing, you hear that bird every day. You, you know, you hear traffic, you, you know, whatever, you hear your children, but uh, the literary language exists to recall to you the strangeness of those things and to make you see them some other way, some essential way that you didn't see them before. So it's, that's what it makes the stone stonier. It doesn't just tell you there's a stone. It helps you to see or experience that quality. And that returns you, uh, Isaac, to... Uh, Husserl and phenomenology mm. and the mm. idea of what does it mean to experience something uh, and and can you know it in a way that you don't know it logically and that's what phenomenology is uh, in a very basic way right regardless of which phenomenology you use that's that's what they were all interested in and uh, so Shklovsky is really good for that for um, and so he said the work of formalism is to understand how that works how does how does that special language make that stone stonier or make that experience bigger or do something mm. you didn't know? And uh, and for you know decades and decades, people have really got a lot out of that. So I wanted to make sure that your listeners yeah. heard and see what you think of that. No, I appreciate that. I remember really liking that essay too. That might be something yeah. that might be a good um, bouncing off point for the next one. Like I remember, sure. see, is that the essay where he's talking about like telling a story from the horse's point of view, for example, yeah. defamiliarization? That's right. Yeah. That's right. No, it's very what interesting. Yeah. What if the horse talks? Yeah. <laughs> What would you find out that you wouldn't find out? That's right. Yeah. No, that's a great, that's a great, we'll, we'll put a pin in that and we'll start there next time. Okay. Julia, I really appreciate you taking the time. Um, I hope, I hope you have enjoyed the rest of your weekend and uh, really appreciate all the fine work. And um, yeah, I'm you. sure, I'm sure the listeners are going to love it too. So um, those of you out there, please subscribe. We're on YouTube now, on Twitter at pod rule and on Patreon at patreon.com slash night rule. And we've got some fresh mixtapes up and there's some fun content coming out very soon. Awesome. Probably got hand, at least three or four recordings planned in the next uh, 
little while. I was doing a little bit less for the last month, but now I'm back on back on the horse. Nice. So to speak. Excellent. I look forward to it. And I look forward to even hearing um, what you have to say and what your listeners have to say about form content and how do they relate. That'd be Absolutely. excellent. I look forward to that. Okay. Thanks so much, Julie. Me too. All right. Take, Take care. care. Bye for now. Bye. Bye.